0: I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you, abide in my love. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. I don't know about you, but I love a good story. It doesn't matter what form or fashion that story comes in, I love to read a good novel, a good book that tells a good story. I love to watch a good movie that tells my wife and I one of our favorite things to do uh, together is to go to the movies and to watch those stories played out on the screen. Or I I love going to the theater. I'm so thankful that in Las Vegas we got the Smith Center now and are able to go and see some beautiful uh, theatrical productions as they tell these amazing stories. I love a good story and every good story has main characters. They're main characters that make up the story. Some of the stories that we all grew up with, we identify them with the characters. And I'll give you some examples, and I want you to kind of fill in the blank when I get there. But the story, for example, that we all grew up with was called one of them, The Three Little Pigs, right? How many of you remember the story of The Three Little Pigs? Now, obviously, The Three Little Pigs are a very important part of the story. There's some main characters, but there's another main character, The Three Little Pigs and The Who. Big Bad Wolf. There you go. Exactly right, right? It's the three little pigs and the Big Bad Wolf. You can't tell the story without those characters. Another story that we all grew up with was the story of Snow White. You can't even say the name Snow White without finishing the sentence because it's Snow White and the who? Seven Dwarfs, right? The main characters of the story. There's Goldilocks and the... Three bears, right? You got to have all the characters in the story for it to make sense, those main characters. Well, what we've been doing here at Hope for the last few weekends is we have been unpacking some truth from a story that Jesus told. Now, in a biblical context, the word that was was used for the stories (coughs) that Jesus would tell is the word parable. It's a parable. Now, a parable is simply an earthly story that is used to communicate spiritual truth. Oftentimes, Jesus would tell parables, just everyday, common, ordinary stories, and he would use them to communicate spiritual or divine truth. The story that we've been unpacking is one that he told his disciples on the evening before his crucifixion. He told them the story of a vineyard. And in that story so far, we have unpacked some of the main characters. For example, the vine is one of the main characters in this story, and we have identified that the vine is Jesus himself. The branches are another main character in the story that Jesus is telling, and we've identified that the branches are you and I. We are the branches. Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. But there's a third major character in this story that we have not touched at all yet. That this weekend and next weekend, we're going to be digging into this third character. And the third character in the story is the vine dresser. Jesus says, he's the vine. We are the branches. And he says, my father is the vine dresser. So I want us to read it again this morning. If you have your Bible, you can open it to John chapter 15. We're going to read these verses as we continue in this series that we've simply entitled, Lessons from the Vineyard. John 15, beginning in verse 1. Here's what Jesus said. I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it so that it may bear fruit. More fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, next is verse 5 in this chapter, and I'm pausing here because I want to give you a challenge. We're going to be digging in this text of Scripture for about seven weekends, and what I want to challenge you to do is over the course of the seven weekends, I want you to memorize. Verse number five. I want you to take verse five, commit it to memory. Not just so you can quote it, but so as you live your life day in and day out, you can continue to bring back to mind these principles that we're learning from John fifteen, and let God use them to bring change and transformation to your life. So I'm going to put John fifteen five up on the screen, and I want us to read this verse out loud together. You ready? One, two, three. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Take that verse, memorize it. Verse 6, he continues. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now what I want to do as we begin this morning is just review for us where we've come to this point. Because these truths from John 15 are so interdependent, you need to understand them in the context. So we began by looking at these eight verses and noticing that over and over again, Jesus repeats that little two-word phrase, bear fruit. He says it six times in eight verses. The whole reason you create a vineyard is to bear fruit fruit. You don't plant a vineyard to decorate the countryside. You plant a vineyard for the express purpose of bearing fruit. The branches that grow connected to the vine only have one purpose, and that is to bear fruit. So we ask the question, what is fruit in the life of a believer? If Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. What is fruit? Because Jesus, in these verses, gives us some insight into what fruit is. He says that fruit is the defining mark of the lifestyle of a Christian and the only way that you and I can bring glory to God. So it's very important that we understand what fruit is. So I want to put back up on the screen the definition that we determined to be what fruit is after looking at the text of Scripture in week one. Let's put it up there, and I want us to read it out loud together. One, two, three. The life of Jesus in me being lived through me. That's fruit. It's the life of Jesus in me being lived through me. Remember the illustration. Think agriculturally. Fruit is the life of the vine being pressed out through the branches. Remember I said, if you have an apple tree, what's coming out? Right? I know you want to say Jesus. It's not Jesus. You got an apple tree, what's coming out? Apple, you got an orange tree, what's coming out? Oranges. You got a lemon tree. What's coming out? Lemons. Why? Because fruit is the life of the vine being pressed out in the branches. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Fruit is the life of Jesus in me being fleshed out through me. So the reality is through our relationship with Jesus, we're being changed on the inside so that what comes out of me is not a better me, but literally Christ in me. And that sets us free as Christians. Here's the reality. Jesus did not save you and Jesus did not save me so that we could live the Christian life. He saved us so that he could live his life through us, out of the overflow of our relationship with him. And if you don't understand that, you miss everything about Christianity. Christianity is not me trying to do something for Jesus. Christianity is me allowing Jesus to manifest his life through me out of the overflow of our fellowship, relationship with him. And when you get that, listen to me, there is great freedom in that as a Christian now we ask a second question what's our part in that if fruit is the life of Jesus in me being lived through me how do I allow that to happen how do I bear fruit six times in these same verses Jesus answers that question with a little phrase abide in me did you know that there's not one command in John 16 to bear or John 15 to bear fruit? Meaning that the focus of our life is not on bearing fruit. The focus of our life is on abiding in Him. Remember what we said. Remember me doing this. The only thing the branch can do is what. Hang on to the vine. My job is not to focus on bearing fruit. My responsibility is simple. I am to abide in him. And as I abide in him, as I cultivate intimacy with him, he begins to live his life through me. So we gave you a definition of what abiding is. I want to put it back up on the screen. I want you to read it with me. It's to live in fellowship with Jesus... Every moment of every day. Now, that was pretty weak participations. I'm going to make you do it again, all right? That's pretty bad. I know you lost an hour of sleep, but you're not the early service. You're the late service, so come on, all right? Let's read it again. To live in fellowship with Jesus every moment of every day. I want you to think about that. Man, with religion, have we messed up. What it is to follow Jesus. No wonder Paul, in his letter to the Corinthian church, said that we have been led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Jesus. We've become so consumed with do's and don'ts and rights and wrongs and rules and regulations that we've missed the very essence of what Jesus invited us into. He only gave us one responsibility, and here it is, to hang on to the vine, to abide in Him. So last weekend, we gave you four suggestions of what it looks like practically to do that on a day in and day out basis. Because I know this this image is forever locked in your mind of me hanging on to this pulpit, but uh, pastor, what does that mean on Monday, right? How do I do that on Monday? So we gave you four, and I wanna add a couple of things to each of these four. Number one, we said be confident of your position in Christ. One of the little books that I'm reading as we walk through this series, and listen, I cannot recommend it to you highly enough It's by a man named Andrew Murray, and it's simply entitled, Abide in Christ. It's a 31-day devotional that this man wrote over 100 years ago, but it is a powerful explanation of this passage of Scripture. Listen to what Andrew Murray said in his little book. The whole Christian life depends on the clear consciousness of our position in Christ. Now, here's what that means. If you don't understand who you are in Jesus, you will never understand how to live the Christian life. Too many Christians have this perspective, that I am living today to earn my position before God. I'm living today to earn favor from God. But the reality is you right now, Because of Jesus, if you have surrendered the control of your life to Jesus, listen to me, you are a loved, accepted child of God with complete access to the Father. I want to say that again because I want you to get that. If you are a Christ follower today, look at me, you are loved You are accepted by the Father. And there's not one thing you have to do to make that happen. There's not one work you have to perform. There's not one deed that you have to do. There's not one religious ceremony that you have to participate in. You are loved and accepted by the Father. And you have complete access to Him. And listen, if you don't understand that about who you are in Christ... You'll never get the Christian life. So that's the first practical reality is by faith daily. When you wake up in the morning, the first word's out of your mouth. Thank you, Lord, that today I'm loved and accepted by the Father. And I have complete access into his presence. And there's not one thing I have to do to earn it today. And listen, there's not one thing I'll do today that'll change it. That's who I am in Christ. Second thing we gave you last week is be intentional about time alone with God. I've said this to you many times before, but but I repeat it. Not just to repeat it, I want you to get it. There is no substitute in the life of a believer for time daily alone with God. If you're looking for a shortcut... If you're looking for an end around, you are going to live frustrated in the Christian life until you become intentional about carving out daily time alone in your schedule to be with God. I'm just going to be as transparent as I can be. The life of Jesus in me, being lived through me, listen, rises and falls based on time alone with Jesus. I'm not with Jesus. Guess what? I don't bear much fruit. I'm with Jesus. I bear fruit. Listen, I'm no different than you. There's no shortcut for you either. Your ability to bear fruit rises and falls. You got to be intentional. Number three, we said to be aware of his desire to be in constant fellowship with you. This is so good. Listen, to be aware of his desire to be in constant fellowship with you. I want to give you, I want to say that in another way. I wrote a statement this week that I hope lets a light bulb kind of come on for you, okay? I want to put the first half of the statement up on the screen. You need to be with God. Say that out loud. You need to be with God, right? How many of you agree that that's true? We need to be with God, right? I want you to get the second half of this. Look what it says. God wants to be with you. As much as you need to be with God, God wants to be with you. He made you to be with you. He created you to live in fellowship with you. Yes, I need to be with God. But here's what you need to realize. God wants to be with you. You are not an interruption into his day. He wants to be with you. Then the fourth thing we said was, be ready for the battle. You begin to let abiding in him become the primary focus of your life. Let me tell you what's going to happen. Your flesh, the world, and the enemy is going to come against that. Because listen to me. Listen, don't miss this. The enemy doesn't care what you do as long as you don't be. That's going to hit some of you at lunch. You're going to be like, man, that's good. That's, that's good. The enemy doesn't care what you do. He doesn't care if you get religious and spend all your time at Hope's campus or if you go dive in headfirst into everything the strip has to offer. He doesn't care what you do, good or bad, as long as you don't be. Because either religion or out-and-out paganism is a cheap substitute for what he's offering you. He's offering you a love relationship with himself. If you got all that, say amen. amen. That's mighty weak. You got it? Amen. All right, because we're going to move in to this next section this morning about this third character, and here's the, the major question of the morning: What is the father's role in bearing fruit? What's the father's role? I want to look back at John 15 and just read the first two verses. And then we're going to draw some truths and be finished this morning. John, or Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Then in verse 2, he gives us two statements about the father's role in bearing fruit. Look at it. First of all, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. There are the two statements. So here's what we're going to do this weekend? We're just going to look at half of that verse this weekend. That's it. Next weekend, we're going to look at the second half of that verse because there are two focuses of the Father in bearing fruit. Let me give you the first one in a statement, and then we're going to unpack it. Here's focus number one. He, the Father, is constantly at work to place us in a position of fruitfulness. Think about it, again, agriculturally. The vine dresser, what's his role? His role is simply to make sure that the vineyard is in the best position possible to produce as much fruit as possible. That's all the vine dresser does. So one of the ways he does that, the Father, is by constantly putting us in a position of fruitfulness. Now I want to look at that phrase again. I want to put it up on the screen Verse 2, he says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit... Read the last three words out loud with me. He takes away. What does that mean? That's kind of scary, right? Uh, He takes away. Well, there are three possible interpretations as to what that means, and all three of them come from the meaning of that Greek word that we have translated takes away. In the Greek language, it's not two words, it's one word, it's the word arrow, and it can mean one of two very different things. First of all, the word arrow can mean to take up and carry away or to remove. If that's what this verse is saying, here's what Jesus said: every branch in me that does not bear fruit, the Father removes. Another meaning of that Greek word arrow is the it means to lift up or to raise. If you read it that way, it says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he the Father. Lifts up. You say, why in the world would the Greeks have a word that can mean something totally different in a given situation? Well, before you get too down on the Greeks, have you ever studied the English language? What I want to do for you this morning is I want to put a word up on the screen, and I want to know what is the very first thing that comes to your mind when you see the word. All right? Give me the word. What do you think of? Now... If you're like me and think of this word correctly, the first thing that comes to your mind is it's spring training. Major League Baseball opening day is only two and a half weeks away. When you see the word pitch, immediately, if you're like me thinking correctly about this word, then you're thinking about a baseball player standing on a mound, hurling a baseball at another guy with a bat in his hand. We call that a pitch, right? But if you're like Pastor Teddy... Pastor Teddy over here on the front row, when Pastor Teddy hears the word pitch, what Pastor Teddy thinks about is a musical term that has to do with the quality of a note being sung or played. We call that pitch. If you're someone who works in the arena of construction, either as an architect or a construction worker, then possibly you see the word pitch and what you immediately think of is the slope of a roof. Maybe you're somebody that likes to play golf. You see the word pitch immediately. Doug, it's probably what you thought of. Think about that little shot right off the green when you take that little club and you loft the ball onto the green. That's called a pitch. Maybe you're somebody from the world of advertising or marketing, and you thought about what you have to do when you go in to make a presentation to a business owner about a marketing plan that you've put together. You have to go in and make a what? A pitch, right? So before we get too down on the Greeks, we're pretty jacked up sometimes ourselves, right? (laughs) How do you know what we're talking about when you see the word pitch? Well, what answers the question? It's context, right? Let me show you that word in a sentence. Look at it on the screen. The president threw out the first pitch at the baseball game on opening day. Now, anybody in here read that sentence and think he's talking about a musical note? Mm Mm-mm. Context helps us understand how a word is used in a given situation. Now, this becomes a little more complex because inside of the Gospels, this word is used both ways. For example, in John chapter 11, describing Lazarus's tomb after. Jesus arrived, the Bible says, so they removed, arrows, the Greek word, they removed the stone. It means to take away, to remove something. But also in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 14, when Jesus fed the multitudes, it says they picked up what was left. The word picked up there is the same phrase, same word, arrow. It means to lift up. It doesn't mean that they removed it, they picked it up. It's also used in the gospel, <coughs> excuse me, of Matthew chapter 27, when it talks about the man that they brought into service to help carry Jesus' cross, Simon of Cyrene. Look what it says, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. The word bear there, same word, arrow. Now, that didn't mean that he removed the cross from Jesus, it means that he came alongside Jesus and he lifted up the cross. Now, based on those meanings, there are three possible interpretations. I'm going to give you all three of them. Then I'll tell you the one that I think is what this text is teaching. And I hope for you today is a defining moment. First of all, some people believe that when Jesus said, Every branch in me that bears no fruit, he takes away. Some people believe that Jesus is referring to people who profess to be Christians, but really are not people who give a testimony that they're a follower of Christ, but they're not a genuine believer. And they say the evidence that they're not a genuine believer is there's no fruit. And fruit being the defining mark of the life of a Christian They can't be a Christian and not be bearing fruit, so these are people like Judas in the immediate context who profess to be a follower of Christ but were not genuine followers of Christ. And ultimately, the Father, either in this life or in the life to come, makes that very evident and removes them from the company of believers. If you'd ask me for a lot of my Christian life what I believe John 15, 2 meant, that is what I would have said I believe John 15, 2 meant before I studied this passage exhaustively. Now, there's a problem with that interpretation. And it's two little words. You know what they are? In me. Jesus said every branch in me that does not bear fruit. I took a concordance. I looked up every instance in the New Testament where the phrase in Christ, in him, or in me is used. There's not one, there's not one place anywhere in the New Testament where that phrase is used to refer to Anybody but followers of Jesus Christ. That is a defining term about Christians. As a matter of fact, it's the very term Paul used in his classic defining statement about being a Christ follower. In 2 Corinthians 5, he said this in verse 17. He said, therefore, if anyone is what? In Christ He is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So therefore, I don't believe that this is referring to people who profess to be Christians, but genuinely are not. So there's a second possible interpretation. Because no fruit is produced, some teach that Jesus is here referring to people who lose their salvation. They are people who were (laughs) genuinely born again, had a relationship with God, but because they bore no fruit, they lost their salvation. There's a problem with that interpretation. The problem with that interpretation is the rest of the New Testament. There are so many statements in the New Testament that are a direct contradiction of that interpretation. As a matter of fact, just a few days earlier, Jesus had said something that is the exact opposite of that. Let me show it to you. John chapter 6, verse 37. Look at it on the screen. Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not say it out loud cast out. It's a Greek word that means to throw away. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never throw away. Then he said, this is the will of him who sent me. He said, that's the will of my father that nobody ever gets thrown away. That of all he's given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day day. It would make no sense for Jesus a few days earlier to say, I'll never throw you away. And then in John 15 to say, hey, if you don't bear fruit, we're going to throw you away, right? Those are direct contradictory statements. Let me show you another one. John chapter 10, verse 28. Jesus said, and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. Listen to this. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. The word snatch means to forcibly remove. It's the exact word that would be used for for taking a branch and forcibly breaking it off and removing it from a vine. Jesus said, no one will snatch them from my hand. And then look what he says. He adds more to it. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Then the Final statement comes from Paul in the book of Romans, chapter 8. And I'm just giving you three examples. There are hundreds. Romans 8, Paul said, for I am convinced. Paul said, let me tell you something. After walking with Jesus for all these years, let me tell you something I'm convinced of. Let me tell you something I'm certain about. That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created Thing. Let me ask you a question this morning. Are you created by God? Let me see your hand. Yeah, right? If you didn't raise your hand, you can now because you are, whether you know it or not. You're created by God. Listen to what he said. Nor any other created thing will be able to, what's the word? Separate. The word separate, there's a word that means to put apart. It means to sever. To separate us from what? The love of God, which is found Where? In Christ. He says, when you're in Christ through the love of God, he said, no created thing. Here's what that means. You and I, there's not anything I can do to separate myself from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. Here's the reality. My security in Christ does not rest in my faithfulness to him. It rests in his faithfulness to me. It's about his faithfulness. So this does not refer to people who lose their salvation. Then, Pastor, what is this about? Well, first of all, we have to come to the conclusion that based on what Jesus has said here, it is possible for believers who are in Christ to experience seasons in their life where they bear no fruit. There is no obvious, visible, outward evidence of the life of Christ in them. But here's what John 15, 2 says. God the Father will not let you stay there. Read it again. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Read it this way. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, listen, lifts up. This came alive for me when I was reading a little book by Bruce Wilkinson called The Secrets of the Vine. It's a great book. I don't agree with everything in it. but It's a great little book. Gives some good insights into this passage of Scripture. In Secrets of the Vine, Bruce Wilkerson, what he does is he interviews the owner of a vineyard. And I want to read you a couple of statements that they made. Here, Listen to this. The vine dresser said this. He said, new branches have a natural tendency to trail down along the ground and grow along the ground. But they don't bear fruit down there. When the branches grow along the ground, the leaves get coated in dust. When it rains, they get muddy and mildewed, and the branch becomes sick and useless. So Bruce asked him this question. So what do you do? Cut it off and throw it away? Thinking about John 15, too, he said when the branch gets down there and doesn't bear fruit, do you cut the branch off and just throw it away? Listen to what the vine dresser said. Oh, no. The branch is much too valuable for that. We go through the vineyard with a bucket of water looking for those branches and we lift them up and we wash them off and then we tie them up around a trellis or we wrap them around a trellis and pretty soon they're thriving again. Listen to me. John 15:2 is not about God giving up on you. John 15:2 is about God looking for you. The Father Yes, listen, it's true that all of us will go through periods in our life where because of a lack of abiding and the things of this world begin to, to choke out our heart and we begin to get focused on the things of this world again and we begin to be drugged down into that and there's no outward evidence of Christ in us. But here's what the Bible says. In those moments, our Father's not giving up on us. Our Father's not throwing us out. Here's what the Father's doing. He comes in the vineyard and he's looking for you. He's got a bucket of water, and he's looking for those branches. Some of you came in here today. Some of you came in here today, and there's no outward evidence of the life of Christ in you. You've gotten caught up in this world. You've gotten drifted away from abiding in Christ. You've stopped finding your sufficiency and your identity in Him. And you've gotten wrapped up and you're wallowing in that. And the enemy's telling you today that the Father has nothing to do with you. The enemy's telling you today, your flesh is telling you today, you might as well give up. God's given up on you. Listen, God's not given up on you. You're here today and the Father's walking through the vineyard. He's looking for you to lift you up. To wash you off. This verse is not about the Father throwing me away. This verse is all about grace. The grace of God that saves us. The grace of God that keeps us. The grace of God that sustains us. The grace of God that lifts us. The grace of God that gives us a fresh start every day. The grace of God that is new every morning. I thought about these men when they heard Jesus say this. What must have been in their mind? These were Jewish men. They'd been raised in a Jewish culture. I can't help but believe when Jesus said this statement to them, they thought of Psalm chapter 40. In Psalm 40 verse 1, listen to what the psalmist writes. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction and out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and trust in the Lord. Hey, I don't know where this message finds you today, but here's what I want you to know. The Father's looking for you. And that fits with the rest of what we know in the New Testament. In the Gospel of Luke, there's three stories back to back to back. The story of a lost coin, the story of a lost sheep, and the story of the lost son. We call it the story of the prodigal son. In all of those stories, what's the father doing? He's looking. In the story of the lost coin, he's tearing the house apart looking for that lost coin. The story of the lost sheep, he leaves the 99 to go find the one. In the story of the lost son, the father every day is standing on the porch and he's looking for that son. He's waiting for that son who's run away, who's begun to abandon everything he was ever taught. And he's watching. And the minute he sees that son coming, the father breaks off that porch and he runs to that son and he throws his arms around him and he slaughters the fatted calf and he has a party and he celebrates the fact that my son who was lost has come home. Grace. This is all about Grace. Here's what John 15, 2. Here's the promise of John fifteen two. God will never give up on you. He will finish what he started. And that's exactly what Paul said in Philippians 1 when he said, He who began a good work in you, what did he say? Will perfect it until the day of Christ. Jesus. He's not giving up on you. He's going to finish what He started. Amen. No wonder. No wonder Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me. All who are weary, And heavy laden. And I'll give you. Rest. He said. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you'll find what? Rest. For your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Matter of fact, His yoke is just one word. Just abide. Abide in